0: UCB Life Issues with Paul Hammond. And a very warm welcome to this week's Life Issues, a Life Issues for Prisons Week. Every year we do a Life Issues around Prisons Week, and this year we thought we'd bring you a slightly different perspective. You see, in previous years, we've wondered what life is like inside. We've made comments about TV dramas and comedies, you know, Norman Stanley Fletcher, you have been found guilty, etc., 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 and wondered about how that TV image has influenced our perspective of prison life. We've spoken to chaplains, charities, ex-offenders. We've busted the myth of the holiday camp easy life inside, or the idea that those who commit crimes are inherently evil. Actually, it's more often about poor choices in difficult circumstances where the message of your life, your community, and often your mental health have taken you down a road that, there but for the grace of God... Mm. But this year, if you believe the headlines, the prison service is in crisis. Things like overcrowding, run out of space in the next three years, said the Metro. Funding issues and problems with keeping especially experienced staff have led to pressures that play out against backdrop stories of violence and drug use, revolving door reoffending, and according to one report, a doubling of the need to use force to control inmates. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? And that was before COVID get people in their pads, their rooms, their cells for most of the day and cut down or close down work and education programs. And I would imagine had an impact on chapel and rehabilitation and restorative justice programs as well. So many of the things that were supposed to help people turn their lives around and be restored to society with the tools and opportunities to go straight, I know, we're back to the stereotypes again, seem to have been withdrawn or pulled back or have been forced to pull back over recent months. Well, we know that we can't believe everything we read in the papers. So this week we're asking, what is it really like? What might be the answers to take things forward? And what's it like for the dedicated men and women who are committed not just to keeping our prison safe or keeping society safe, but also making a place where the biblical principle of a fresh start can become a reality. My guest to explore this, well, we thought if we could ask about prison, maybe we should ask the governor. She is governor at HMP Woodhill and she's Nikki Marfleet. Nikki, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for
0: having me. I, I wonder what you think. Is It is true, isn't it, that even before COVID, there was an awful lot of headlines in our papers telling us of the crisis within the prison service. And I, I wonder what you think of that sort of imagery, because it does sound as though sometimes you and your colleagues are working in a war zone.
1: <laughs> yes um, it certainly does I think there's always headlines isn't there and um, you know o- often what we'll find is that the press are reporting the negative things the things that sell papers um, and you know I guess my privilege of working on the inside is that I know of so many good things that are happening as well but absolutely right it is the challenge of a lifetime leading in the prison service you know I certainly didn't join the job looking for a nine to five, looking for an easy office situation, although those absolutely have their stress as well. But I was drawn to it because I knew that at any stage of a working day, an alarm bell could go off, I'd have to drop what I was doing as a prison officer and run to assist colleagues. Um, it is definitely a chaotic, busy, frustrating uh, challenging environment and career yes
0: and it is true i think to say that there have been i mean i mentioned some of those those things like re- retention of staff and um, funding that's available the ability to run programs uh, and so on i mean it is to say even before covid those things were being very pressured and that was having an impact on the internal life of prison
1: uh, yes, and that is such a great example, because at Woodhill, that is my number one problem. Uh, we've just had a Inspector of inspector prisons come in and their report is being drafted at the moment. But one of the themes that runs through that report is a struggle that we have daily to keep staff and to recruit staff. And, you know, looking at a prison that is geographically just outside of London, uh, there are deep challenges about being in a place like Milton Keynes where you know you can actually earn more working in one of the the retail departments down the road than you can as a prison officer and so our challenge is to uh, draw in people that are looking for a job that requires them to have resilience and grit and actually compassion Um, and uh, you know we are seeing a lot of new prison officers joining Woodhill as we speak but yes that is a huge challenge for
0: us. And we'll talk a little bit more later on about the the lot of the prison officer because they're not not always painted in the best of lights are they by the by media and by by sort of dramas and all that sort of thing but so we will come back to that but is there a sense in which i mean i hear you talk about the role and it's almost as though it has to be seen as a vocational role a vocational role is it a calling?
1: For me, it absolutely is a calling. I think, you know, I'm 21 years of service in now. I joined when I was 23 and worked my way up from being a prison officer to being a governing governor. Um, and, you know, that that is a, a learning experience every single day. Um, it definitely is not a job that you join lightly. It's not a job where you go just to pay the mortgage. And actually, the people that we are losing from service are those that joined in that manner rather than as a vacation for me it is a deep calling mm. it is my front line as it were and uh, you know i really feel that i was called into the prison service some days i have no idea why <laughs> some days i don't <laughs> feel i'm doing a great job um, but i absolutely believe with a passion and know that i'm meant to be exactly where i am right now
0: so what did lead you into this work then as a a young woman Life spreading out before you, standing at the the sort of the the junctions of where life might take you and where the roads might take you. What was it led you to believe that God was taking you down this path?
1: You know, it was actually a real surprise to me. I uh, grew up as a missionary kid. My parents worked for MAF. My dad was a helicopter pilot. And so I grew up in Indonesia. Uh, We grew up in the rainforest um, working with the Dani tribe. And so when we came back to the UK, I was set on a course of actually going back to join the mission field, um, and uh, you know wanted to do that, working with Tear Fund as a photographer, um, and did a photography degree. Um, and then one day, um, my dad was asked to come into Maidstone Prison to share his story. Um, and as it so happened, they did not have a worship leader that day, and so they invited me in as well and said, "Look, your dad's coming in." Do want to come in and lead worship, and um, you know, I was intrigued and um, felt no sense calling, but thought I'll go along, it'll be a bit of a laugh, bit exciting. Um, and I remember uh, that I was talking to a guy at the back of the service, um, who was doing the PA desk, and it wasn't until he walked away that I realized, oh my goodness, I think he must have been a prisoner,
0: <laughs> and it was
1: a shock because. Uh, You know, the main group of prisoners hadn't come in. It was such a shock because he was so normal. And right there was my challenge about all of my own bias, uh, my own misinterpretation about what prisons would be like, um, and my own naivety. And that started me on three years of actually, I joined Prison Fellowship as a volunteer and continued to go into Maidstone for three years, um, every Sunday to help them lead worship, went in on Thursdays when I could to practise, and I just caught the bug. And so then when I came back from university, um it was a bit of God's timing in my life where I still wasn't considering a career, but it was pouring with rain one day and I was out in the high street. And so I jumped into the nearest shop just to get out of the rain. And as it so happened, it was the careers office. And so I thought, well, I'd better look like I'm legitimately in here. <laughs> so I sat down at the computer with soaking wet hair and um, started to just look at jobs. And I, I looked at what I might thought what I thought would be interesting jobs. So um, army, police, prison. And as the prison job downloaded, um, there was uh, just something about it that, that twigged with me um, a sense of calling. And yes, so I printed yeah. it off, took it home, uh, was living at home at the time with my parents. And I thought there's no way they are gonna be excited about this after they've just forked out for a photography degree. Um, But amazingly, they said, this sounds exactly like you. I think you should go for it, apply and see if you got in. And it was a graduate scheme I was looking at. And I got one of 20 places that year. And actually, when I went to college, to training college to be a prison officer, I ended up getting the cup for the the best student. And so all the way along, there was just these sort of uh, moments of favour where it was just God encouraging me that I was on the right track.
0: That's absolutely brilliant. And I do kind of suspect that at that moment as the rain fell and you jumped into the <laughs> shop, there was a chuckle in heaven. Um, and so obviously, you, you, as you say, for many, many years now, you've been part of the service. You have worked your way through the different roles in the service to get to the point where you are now carrying the responsibility for Woodhill. Um, how does your experience of faith tie into to? The work that you do because i think many of us will assume that a position like yours faith isn't something you can really bring into it or that you can be vocal about how how is living out your faith in the role of being a prison governor
1: i think that's such a great question and it's a question that really will be out for anybody listening who is a person of faith that is in any role um because we do have a responsibility in our professions to work hard and be good at what we do. For me, I see my work as my worship. I think that is biblical. And I think for me that means that I'm not just going to live a life where I pray about something and expect to be handed it on a platter. In fact, quite the opposite. This is undoubtedly the hardest two years of service I've ever given uh, leading through COVID and you know it has been deeply distressing at times it has been uh, absolutely discouraging most days and as many many people are talking about in the uk it's it's the most frequent that i have found myself praying lord am i in the right place am i still meant to be here and so for me living out my faith uh, was certainly when i was an officer it did involve a lot more ad- you know, chatting often at the pub, I will say, uh, where people were intrigued about some of my life choices and some of what I stood for as my values and would just openly ask me. And there was a lot of discussion, less so the more senior I've become. Uh, and so now I really see uh, living out my faith as just uh, wanting to serve people with love. So my leadership style is sort of servant leadership, which um, again, some people will have heard of and some people won't. Um, but I remember uh, reading a book when I was uh, newly in prison service called Thank God It's Monday by Mark Green. And that was really my starting point. Yeah. Uh, I, I can remember being gifted it by my granddad and he'd written in the front, you know, I hope that this causes you to thank God on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday and a Thursday and a Friday. And really that is tried to be my attitude to go in with Thanksgiving, to go in as my worship, to go in not grouchy and moody, Um, and, And not making life easy either, but to go into the best of who I can be and what I can bring into that space. And there was one day when I was working at Pentonville in London and I can remember coming through Highgate, I'd stopped at a red light and there was a whole row of sort of cars just parked up on the side of the road and it was autumn and I could see this road sweeper sweeping the leaves and, you know, he was really going for it. He was going for all of the leaves the ones that were under the car, the ones that were on the road, the ones that were on the curb. And, and it was a God moment where I instinctively felt that that man was doing the job to the best of his ability without his boss watching. And that is who I want to be. Yes. I want to bring my best, um, regardless of who is watching me, as as if it is serving the Lord. And sometimes that's dismissing colleagues. Sometimes that's telling a prisoner they can't go to a funeral. Uh, Sometimes that's very, very hard stuff. Sometimes it's an absolute joy. Sometimes it's giving, uh, you know, long service medals out. But whatever it is, it's choosing to come in with an attitude of what am I bringing of the heavenly kingdom into this space today in a way that's not preachy, in a way that just brings hope that brings love, that speaks of value over prisoners' lives, over prison officers' lives, over families' lives. It's taking the time to care. If a mum has written to me angry that her son is X, Y, and Z, and me bothering to pick up the phone just so that she can hear a kind voice saying, we know your son matters, he's not just a number. The amount of times I have had that conversation with mums and spouses and partners mm. where they've accused me of not caring and just, you know, looking after their son as, a, son as a number. And I've just been able to say, look, we know him, we, we care about him, we're doing our best, and then they've just burst into tears because they've, you know, been so appreciative to know that that their son is living in that place with that level of care.
0: And I suppose that highlights... An important fact for most of us, whether it be those of us who have had contact with people who have been inside the wall, or whether it is a totally alien environment. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what prison is. I mean, I remember hearing a quote many years ago that pointed out that people are not sent to prison to be punished. They are sent to prison as punishment, so that then work might start to to rehabilitate them. Do you, it must be frustrating for you to continually come up this, against the same lack of understanding and the same ignorance about life behind the wall. I, I wonder what are some of the the big ones that that you, if you had a chance to speak into, which you do now, um, you would say, look, just be aware of this.
1: Yeah, I mean, you said in your introduction, there but for the grace of God go any of us. And I think that is really true. There's certain prisoners in my life that I will never forget. And one of those was a man who was being released uh, to return to Scotland, actually. Um, And um, he sat in my office and we were issuing him his train ticket to go back north. And he was sobbing. And what he was asking for was... Sort of two stage ticket to go via uh, a graveside where his son was buried. And, you know, his crime was drink driving. Uh, The tragedy was that his son was not wearing a seatbelt and his son went through the window and lost his life. Now, he deserved prison for that. And he was a grieving father. Mm -hmm. There is no worse punishment than losing your son. And, I think that's why his situation stuck with me so much, because any single time any one of us pushes the limit or pushes the alcohol or, you know, whatever it might be, um, we do not know how many times or how close we ourselves have come to being the wrong side of the law. And, you know, in 21 years, I've met people that have been in and out and in and out again, uh, people who... um, have left prison and have had to sleep under a bridge for three months, you know, what sort of chance does somebody have to come out of prison with every good intention um, and then find that they are homeless and can't get a job because they can't get a shower um, and they are desperately, you know, trying to stay awake at night for their own safety um, and are having to scrub around for food. Um, And so I think, you know, I meet a lot of young men. We have a lot of young offenders in our prison. And um, some of them absolutely must be there for many, many years because of their level of danger to society if they were released. And others of them uh, are trapped up in all sorts of gangs, um, all sorts of knife crime. We see this in our news every single day. Um, And it is just desperately sad. Um, I have seen many people who... Uh, themselves were victims long, long, long before they became a perpetrator. And, you know, none of this is a political rant. This is describing to our listeners today uh, the, the tragedy and the problems and the challenge of the justice system in our country and actually in any country. Um, and I do not have the solutions as I sit here today, but I want to be on the inside, I want to be in the arena. Adding my bit to Mm. the
0: fight, and I suppose Um, in some ways it is. It's that point that you made, and and I've been in a similar situation where visiting someone in prison came into contact with someone who was a prisoner and who was obviously there. They were long, got a long sentence. They were obviously there for something very serious. But the the normal. Everyday nature of the conversations that we had, and of the worries that he had, and the thoughts that he had, and the burdens that he had, and the the things that went through his head. We were of an age, the things that went through his head as a dad, and the things that went through my head as a dad. I mean, it was incredible that he was just an ordinary bloke who had done something terrible and ended up in prison. It is a sense of that understanding that people who are in prison, they are people.
1: That's right, and I had cause to write to somebody who was newly starting a sentence just last week, and I added into their letter um, the the quote which I've heard elsewhere. It's it's not mine. It's not original. That says um, none of us are the worst thing we've ever done, and I think that's mm. the difficulty when you are serving a sentence. Is it makes it feel as if that is the case. You know, we um, see many people that are. Um, In prison and actually even at Woodhill, you know, you you, and anybody can see this from our history that in 2015 and 16, those two years, we lost 12 men to suicide. We had the highest suicide rate in the country. You know, that's not the bragging rights a prison governor wants. You know, what are you best at? Well, we're best at suicides. I mean, it was it was tragic um, and trying to work through that with inquiries and with skill sets and psychologists and all sorts of people to work out what is it within our, our kind of community at that stage that was leading young men and older men to feel so hopeless that they were taking their own lives. And prison is a punishment. Um, I think it is, is not as simple as saying, well, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. That, that is pretty crass. Mm. And I think that's probably the one thing that I would always speak up in. Um, I had a friend once who was always, always on at me. This is, you know, 10 years ago or so about how ridiculous it was that this, um, you know, prison was actually a holiday camp. And he'd heard that prisoners have a TV in their cells, God forbid, you know, and, um, and a telephone, you know. And, um, and I, it got to the point where I was so irked. I said to him, right, shut up you are coming in to see this prison. I will get you in. And so I arranged with my governor at the time for my friend to come into prison with me. And needless to say, he never said those things to me again after his one day of coming inside.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, I suppose, that most people do not know the reality of what it's like in prison. Most people have not had to, to spend time there, Over a period of time, most people don't even have the experience of going through the visitor's entrance and the searches and and so on and so on to to get into the visitor's hall. So most people, it is a totally alien environment. It's probably fair to say as well that most people don't really want to know what's going on in prison, sort of out of sight, out of mind and all that sort of thing. So especially as people of faith, why should we care about those men and women who are there but for the grace of God? Why should we actually care about the struggle that they have right now? They have committed crimes. They are there because of their threat to society and all that sort of thing. Why should we be bothered?
1: I think that there is a real sense of um, church being the people, uh, not the buildings. And if there's one thing that lockdown and worshipping through lockdown has shown us, it's that truth um for me we should care because i do feel that that is where jesus would be if he was here in bodily form today and um, you know it is not easy to reach out to these uh, group of people that are um often so desperate um so chaotic in their lives so traumatized um you know very few people understand how traumatized prisoners can be by their own crime. And so you're not only trying to rehabilitate somebody, you're trying to get them to revisit something that is deeply traumatic for them. And there may be very little sympathy for that. And I understand that. Um, But nevertheless, it is a, a hard slog to see men who have lived years of lives in prison or pre-prison, you know, in in lives of crime, uh, to try and get them uh, to change their ways and to take an active role within society, playing a positive life. Mm -hmm. You know, I love the back of our ID badges says, you know, our, our duty is to keep people, you know, committed by the courts. Yes to protect the public, to stop future victims, all of that kind of thing. But then it says our duty is to care for them with humanity. And so I kind of love that because that's my job description, to care for them with humanity. But actually, that's also my calling. That is what Jesus asks us to do, is love your neighbour as yourself, love each other. And he doesn't put a caveat on that of love each other. Oh, by the way, if they happen to be nice and they'll return the favor and they're wealthy, he says love each other. And the challenge daily is that many, many of these people feel unlovable and yet they are loved by the father. They are loved by Jesus. They are loved by their families. And so I think as a church, we need to. Uh, be courageous we need to be wise we need to uh, grow ourselves in terms of our learning about how we can have safe uh, church communities and you know really raise people up to go into the prisons to meet people at the gate to give them every best chance of saying I know that somebody cares about me and and you know certainly one of the prisons uh, sorry one of the churches I was involved in with previously, I can remember complaining to the vicar and saying, Why don't we have any prison ministry here? And quite rightly, he said, Well, go ahead and set it up. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and I did. Yeah. And now there is a thriving uh, prison group that do Angel Tree. Um, they go in and run sycamore courses. They help with Alpha, all in their local London prison. And that was a real challenge for me of me looking at somebody else and thinking, Why aren't you doing this? And actually, him saying, Well, you know, why aren't you? Um, And when we got it set up, so, you know, have a look if you're in a church and see what's available. And if there's not, get in touch with somebody like Prison Fellowship.
0: Yes, indeed. And uh, Prison Fellowship, great place to start if you are thinking about getting involved and perhaps God is prompting something in you as we are talking today. You're listening to UCB Life Issues. I'm Paul Hammond. My guest is Nikki Marfleet. Nikki is the governor at HMP Woodhill. And we are talking for Prisons Week about the realities of life in prison at the moment. And. You've alluded to it a few times already. The impact of COVID over the last uh, few months undoubtedly has had an impact on the work that you can do to help prisoners and offenders to be rehabilitated, to turn their lives around, to, to find a different direction. What are, though, in general terms as well, the big stumbling blocks, the issues that face inmates on that idea that prison is an opportunity to find a fresh start.
1: I like the suggestion that prison can be a transformational opportunity for prisoners. And that being said, uh, COVID has really struck a challenge there. Um, We and many other prisons are still feeling very much like we're in lockdown uh, the men are out or the women are out for um, you know a few hours every day but by no means are we back to normal by no means are we you know openly running a full regime again we have to be very careful and we have for you know most of the year being been operating within bubbles and that has meant that we haven't been able to operate education as normal or the offending behavior courses as normal and so some men will be waiting for courses, Uh, that they should have taken in the last year and a half that they haven't been able to access. Mm.
0: That must have a big impact on morale and the belief that... I, I would imagine that the window to show someone that they can take a different direction and they can build a different style. I would imagine that window is quite narrow, when you've had delays like that, and when you've had delays be- previously because of, of funding cuts and so on, I would imagine that that has a big impact on the efficacy of the work you're trying to do.
1: It can do. And I think that you know we always will promote that good relationships between staff and prisoners is one of the most important things about getting somebody's journey started. Um, some some prisoners have been in this, the system in, in quotes, for a long time, for many years, I think I've got um, a couple of prisoners at my place that will never uh, be released. I've got many that are serving over twenty years, and um, some of those have been in for decades already. Um, so it it is an opportunity to be able to say, uh, you know, what what do you want to work towards? But there's a difference between preparing somebody for release when they're serving three years, or supporting somebody and preparing them. For a new sentence of 30 years. And that has been the challenge for me recently is, you know, what does that look like when you are serving a long sentence? Um, You know, how do we keep somebody's morale going? Mm. And I'm talking about prisoners here, not just staff. Um, You know, and, and how do we help them? Uh, I think that prisons can institutionalise. You know, one of the things that I've loved about um, prison reform more recently is an attempt to normalise a prisoner's experience. Um, you know, as the, the best example I can think of is every single day the men queue up at the hatch to get their hot meals. Um, And, uh, you know, after doing that for 10 years, they then go home to a chaotic environment in some places. And, you know, where's their dinner, their hot dinner at 5 p.m. every single day that they haven't had to prepare and they haven't had to fund. Um, And so, you know, when we're looking at normalizing a prisoner's experience, that is about their role as an active citizen. It might be their role as a father or a husband or a partner. Um, and that's that's the challenge for me every day is looking at not only offending behaviour programmes, not looking only at delays through COVID, but how can we continue with our relationships with staff and prisoners to really show them you've got so much to offer, you are of value, this is where you're struggling, this is the things that seem to be ensnaring you all of the time and how can we help?
0: Especially when... Those things that are ensnaring, though, I mean, the reason that they are with you in the first place is probably because they couldn't believe that they had much to offer. They didn't see that there were opportunities. There was sort of structural oppression that kept them channeled down a particular road even before they got to prison to then envisage breaking out of that pattern through prison I mean it must be beyond the comprehension of many of the men that spend time with you
1: Yes, I imagine it is I, I remember um, clearly a young lad who I had a conversation with and and you know he was stuck in a cycle of drugs within the prison and he was stuck in a cycle of offending and and sort of petty theft outside of prison and I said to him, you know what did you dream of doing at the age of 10 and and he said, miss i was already on drugs by 10 and that devastated me yeah. because then i had to go back on something not letting him just win on this and i said well okay what about five you know he could not name a single dream that he personally had but when i started talking to him about his daughter he wanted her to be a taekwondo winner and you know sort of uh, you know a, a, somebody who was able to Uh, live dreams that he hadn't had. And actually then when I pushed him on that, he was able to acknowledge that that had once upon a time, a long, long time ago, been his own personal wish as well, his dream. And and that's what we're fighting against is, you know, trying to work with these men to say, um, you know, it isn't just everything that has happened to you you know at the moment I'm proactively working to try and upskill my own learning and my own understanding around the number of black and Asian and minority young men that we lock up and as a white woman uh, as a white leader trying to uh, co-lead with people and give my platform away to people that have Uh, much more to say about that than i can do as a white woman um and you know just acknowledging the sense of injustice and the actual injustice that there can be at times if you are trapped within the justice system as a young black man um and so we've started working uh to really um revisit all of our material and say actually this doesn't work because it was written by me and predominantly white people, so let's invite our black community into the space mm-hmm. to say to them well what what should we be looking at And I think the deepest thing for me in the last two years has been learning that I have got to stop taking offense at things that people are, are saying to me in terms of my own lessons and my own learning. Um, and I think that challenge is there for the church at the moment and I think it's there in uh, you know a lot of what was what we're seeing you know this is Black History Month as well as Prisons Week. Um, and I would say, you know, there's there's probably more that's going on in the prison around the whole community of Black Lives Matters, of black and Asian minority ethnic prisoners and staff since the murder of George Floyd. And all that that has encompassed yeah. through COVID for our young men locked in prison.
0: And let's think just in our final few moments, because I promised that we would come back to it. Let's think about the lot of your staff then, the lot of the prison officer and the difference Mm. that a good one can make. Because it is fair to say, if I might use the phrase, that the screws aren't always portrayed in a positive light, are they? And, and I, I talked earlier on about things like, you know, whether it be a comedy like Porridge or whether it be some of the, the dramas that have been on in and around life in prison. It is fair to say that the prison officers don't always get painted in a very positive light. That must be frustrating for you and for your staff. So so what is it like to be a prison officer these days?
1: It's a hard job, uh, as I said at the beginning. You need to have resilience. You need to have grit. You need to have courage, and you need to have compassion. Um, it isn't enough to just be somebody that's, you know, six foot male uh, and tough. You know, ex forces that kind of um, perception that we would traditionally have of a prison officer. In fact, I've had a prison officer who was female and probably under five foot, and she would. Hold that wing better than any other prison officer I knew, because the prisoners uh, just loved her, and she would sort of mum them into you know <laughs> kind of obeying the rules. And it was fantastic to watch. You know, we need such a diverse mix of prison officers, and I think that yes, we've all seen the films and the uh, you know the the series about corrupt prison officers, and, and this this sad reality is yes, they are out there. Uh, But there are many, many prison officers that are are, are just fantastic colleagues to work with. I remember um, the day that we had to go and tell one of our prisoners that his brother had been murdered in a a gang fight. And, you know, that's desperate news to have to tell somebody. And uh, I remember seeing the prison officer that had been there when that news was broken to him by our chaplains, just kind of scoop him off the landing where he'd fallen get him back into his room and just sit beside him on his bed with his arms around him, just, just letting him sob and work through the shock of that news. And I would have that guy as the leader on my team any single day, because he's not only courageous and good at standing up to prisoners that are fighting, he's also compassionate. He's interested in the the family pictures that are on the wall. And that's the kind of person that we're looking for. And if anybody listening has got that sort of, you know, life set of skills, then then check us out. You know, come and consider uh, a, a life of serving within the prison and probation service because you meet the most incredible people as colleagues and actually as prisoners. Um, and it will be the challenge of a lifetime.
0: And undoubtedly it's the work that's done and the difference that's made in people's lives. It's a team effort. Everybody would mm. say that. But from an individual point of view, as someone who has worked through every level of serving in the prison service, for you, what is what is the switch the light off at night, settle back for a night's sleep, the satisfaction that sense that of achievement that sits within your heart—that
1: <laughs> is such a great question. And honestly, at the moment, uh, most days there isn't a sense of that. And I don't mean that in a despairing way. Actually, quite the opposite. I have never felt more clearly that I am listening to a call to be obedient, to be in that space. Um, the last time I prayed about um, whether or not it was right for me to continue as a prison governor and stay at Woodhill, um, it had been a desperately difficult two weeks. And I was like, just praying, Lord, if if I'm meant to be here, I can absolutely hack this. But if if I've stepped outside of your will, then, you know, let me know. And, and I was praying specifically, should I stay? That was the, the phrase. And, um, you know, I think the next day on Instagram, I saw... Um, a, a Bible passage, which was from Mark 13 13, that just said, Stay with it, stay to the end, and you will not be sorry, you'll be saved. Now, I, I know I'm taking that passage out of context, but for me in that moment, it was the absolute encouragement I needed to continue in what has been the hardest two years of my career. And so I guess that is the satisfaction. That is the sense of um, I'm choosing to step up daily and. Uh, be in that space, engaging with those men, engaging with my staff team, and trying to make a positive difference every single day, whether or not I see it, whether or not I feel it, because I know that that is what we as church are called to do, is to just be Jesus in the darkness, in the tight spaces, in the awfulness, in the disappointments. And so really, you know, if you'd asked me to interview five years ago, um I would have been far more victorious about how wonderful everything was going and the truth of the matter is you know I've been at Woodhill 7 years um and it is tough to stay and that is exactly why I'm staying so you know one day I'm sure I'll move on and it will be somebody else's turn to give it a go but for now I can sleep at night because I know I'm where I'm meant to be
0: so then let me ask you one final question for those of us listening to you today who do have and do share your faith. And for those of us perhaps who have had family or friends who have been behind the wall, and for those of us who live in towns and cities where we know that there is, whether it be an HMP or, or one of the other ones, a prison that is not far from us, how should we be praying for that community behind the wall? How should we be praying for the the? offenders, the inmates? How should we be praying for the staff? How should we be praying for the governor and for the leadership team?
1: I think there's so much to pray about. My daily prayer as I drive to work is Prince of Peace, come and reign in this space uh, where we have violence, where we have fights, where we have anger, where we have despair. It's just speaking the name of Jesus over all of that. Um, and, um, you know, praying for great people to come and engage into those communities. Um, So, you know, I'm praying for the families. The the, the families of prisoners are often the unseen victims. They're also the ones serving the sentence. Um, Desperately, desperately difficult uh, for some of our families that that are seeing loved ones uh, locked away. And, you know, pray for them, even if you don't know their names. Um, Sometimes I um, prayer walk around the outside of the prison and that's not to, to, you know, work any magic or, you know, get anybody worried about what influence I'm trying to, you know, put over um, inappropriately and my responsibility. It's about saying, Lord, you know these people and you love these people so much deeper than I will ever feel like doing, and so will you steer me in the right direction every single day? Will you help me see that person that is getting to the point of thinking their life is hopeless? Will you help me to be kind? Will you uh, bring a light into every single person's life this day because of me being in that building? Um, and, you know, I think that if we know somebody in prison or we don't know somebody in prison, um, we, can, we can pray that um, Jesus will show us how to pray.
0: Nikki Marfleet is the Governor at HMP Woodhill, my guest today for Life Issues for Prisons Week, just lifting a veil perhaps and giving us an insight into the realities and an insight into the opportunity to bring a real difference into your local prison, either by getting involved in the work of groups like Prison Fellowship or by praying that the Prince of Peace would bring his peace to bear on all those who, Who need to find him for their lives and for their future. Nikki, great to speak to you today. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to UCB Life Issues, the whole series, of course, available as podcasts on the UCB Player app or indeed wherever you download yours. I'm Paul Hammond. Why not join me next week for another one? Goodbye.